The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. A lot of people like Christmas. It's one of the favorite holidays of the year for a lot of folks, and it's even a favorite holiday for a lot of people who aren't Christians or necessarily religious for various reasons. And But we as Christians need to keep uh, the plumb line for all people as to why Christmas is the day to be celebrated, and the Word of God is very clear on what Christmas is about. So I would invite you to open up to Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and we're going to look at one main verse, and with that, some other scriptures that go along with it for our Christmas message this year on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason of the season. Uh, there are many places in the Word that we could have gone, but I do want to go back to one of my favorite Christmas verses in Isaiah 9, 6. Two Fridays ago here at GBF, we celebrated our Christmas uh, as a church with a Christmas celebration, kind of like a Christmas concert on Friday night, beautiful time, many people showed up uh, and we were blessed and the Lord Jesus Christ was exalted through uh, scripture, through song and the fellowship that we had together, so that was a blessed time and I just scratched the surface on Isaiah 9, 6 on one attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ and I wanted to expand on that uh, because this passage is so rich, this prophecy that Isaiah the prophet gave uh, through uh, the moving of the Spirit of God as it speaks to Jesus Christ. So we'll look at Isaiah 9-6. The title of the message today I put there is What's So Merry About Christmas? Because everybody's saying it all the time. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And like I said, it's uh, almost spoken without thinking, uh, a mantra that's just cultural that many times doesn't have any significance. Uh, so I wanted to turn that around, turn it into a question. And by the way, what is Mary? What does that mean? That's an old and kind of archaic word, maybe borrowed from the time of Shakespeare and King James. But Mary really just focuses on joy, true, satisfying, deep-seated, abiding joy of a spiritual nature is really what it means. Uh, have a joyous Christmas in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you know him personally, remember him and celebrate him. That's really what you're saying when you say Merry Christmas. And if you explained it that way and to folks, they would be shocked and stop where they stood. Like, what are you talking about? Merry Christmas. But that's exactly what Christmas means. What is Merry about Christmas? What is Merry about it? And what gives true joy and reason to celebrate? And by the way, the only reason to celebrate and have joy is because Christmas is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and why He came into the world 2,000 years ago. From the Gospels, towards the end of His ministry, actually Jesus asked it a couple of times, but in particular at the end of His ministry, just prior to His death, after doing three years of public ministry, Jesus pulled His disciples aside. It could have been maybe just His apostles. We know Peter was there. And he said, who do men say that I am? Now that the verdict is out and I've preached all over Israel and I've been public and done miracles and healed everybody that asked me, who do men say that I am? Who do people say that I am? What's the consensus? Peter, as you've had your ear to the ground and interacted with all these people with me for three years, well, there was a disparity of answers. There wasn't one consensus. They didn't say it in concert, but actually... What Peter's answer was revealed that there was a lot of confusion about who Jesus was. Peter, who do people say that I am? And he gave several answers. Well, some people think you are uh, Elijah the prophet. Some think you're John the Baptist back from the dead. Some people think you're Jeremiah the prophet for whatever reason. Some think you are uh, any number of other Old Testament prophets. 
Now, that doesn't even include all the other uh, answers that the Jewish leaders have been giving the whole time during Jesus' Jesus's ministry of saying who he is. That he was a deceiver, that he was insane, that he was demon-possessed, that he was of an illegitimate mother, that he was a false teacher. So that was what his own people, the Israelites, were saying about who he was. So they didn't even, many of them couldn't even get it right about who Jesus is and why he came. But then Jesus followed up with Peter and said, but Peter, who do you say that I am? You know me. I've been teaching you. Uh, I've loved you. You're going to be my representative. Peter, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter got it right as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. And he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. A divine revelation from the father enabled Peter to recognize Jesus for who he truly was. He was more than a man, more than a prophet. He was God in a body, the savior of the world. And that's why he came 2000 years ago. That's who he was when he came. And that's why Christmas is merry. It's all about Christ. What's so merry about Christmas? Jesus is what makes it merry because Jesus is wonderful. Let's go ahead and look at uh, Isaiah 9, 6 together. And in this one verse, it is so rich, as I said, Isaiah 9, 6, in the midst of a messianic prophecy, all of chapter 9 in Isaiah is really a messianic prophecy. And there are prophecies that were fulfilled during Isaiah's day. Some of these prophecies are fulfilled during the first coming of Christ, and some are yet to be fulfilled in the future. So it's mixed, but there are many prophecies, and they're all regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. And they began to be inaugurated and fulfilled at his first coming 2,000 years ago. And in this one verse, in this one prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6, uh, it is distilled down in no other verse like this of explicating the attributes of who this Jesus was. And that's why I want to focus on who Jesus is according to Isaiah 9, 6. Let's go ahead and look at it together. And I just wanted to highlight five truths about Jesus from this verse as by way of a wonderful reminder. But before I do that, just a quick word about Isaiah because we don't get to spend a whole lot of time in the Old Testament. And so I'd ask you, when was the last time you had devotions in Isaiah or even read Isaiah as a Christian? And answers will vary. And sometimes maybe it's been a long time. Maybe you've actually never read the whole book of Isaiah, but I would encourage you to do so for many reasons. Number one, Isaiah is one of the longest books in the Bible. So there's a lot of content there that God thought was important that his people needed to know. So that's a, a very good reason. Another reason is that much of that content has to do with prophecies of the coming Messiah. Isaiah wrote in about 700 B.C., so 700 years before Christ. Isaiah is writing about his contemporaries and the Assyrians that are about to come in at 722 and attack uh, northern Israel. And then he also prophesied about Babylon that would come in, in around 586 so he did talk about contemporary events, but also he talked much about the future and the coming of this great Messiah. Uh, so it's very encouraging to read all these prophecies about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ 700 years before he was born. Isaiah 9, 6 is one of those explicit prophecies. So it's just a deep and rich book, Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet of God and ministered primarily in the Jerusalem area for almost over 50 years. Can you imagine? Called as a prophet of God for over 50 years. Several different kings down in Judah, but also during the time of kings who reigned up in the north in Israel. And Isaiah's mission as one man and a frail, finite, fallen man, but who loved God, his mission was primarily to warn the people they needed to turn back to God. They got off the beaten path. They were headed in the wrong direction. He's calling them to repentance primarily and also calling them 
to let them know if they don't repent, there is doom and judgment coming from a holy God. He also was uh, calling the kings who ruled in his day to accountability. And these were supposed to be righteous, godly kings, but they were compromising. So that was Isaiah's job. It was very difficult for 50 years. It was a long, hard, arduous ministry that God called him to. Many times he was not heard or accepted. Many times ostracized and rejected. Many times even mocked for his message of accountability that he brought. And so that theme of repentance and judgment weaves its way all through 66 chapters of Isaiah. But also, among God's judgment is always the call to salvation and hope. Because that's the God that we know and love. He's a gracious God. He's a forgiving and merciful God. And so Isaiah has a lot of hope, comfort, and a good message. A message of salvation. As a matter of fact, Isaiah, his name means salvation is from the Lord. So he provides a lot of hope for people if they would turn to him. And that hope and that comfort and that salvation and rescue is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly with his first coming and then again at his second coming. So that's kind of the big picture of Isaiah. And Isaiah, uh, a unique prophet, used a lot of good imagery. Sometimes he had to use very graphic, almost controversial imagery to get their attention. Even some of the modes that he chose to prophesy to get their attention maybe would seem odd or suspect to us this day. I mean, what would you think of a man who was walking around in public all the time in nothing more than a loincloth or a diaper preaching God's wrath on the tip of his tongue? That's what Isaiah did for three years. Scripture actually says he went around naked for three years. Probably what that meant was just in a loincloth, in grieving, calling people, uh, to attention to his message. So that's just a, a little bit about Isaiah. He was also married and his wife was a prophetess probably at times. And then he had at least two sons who had prophetic names. Uh, one of the sons, his name was Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Wait, I'll say that again. That was his first name. Come here, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That would be hard to do as a dad. But anyway, it was it's a Hebrew word. It means something very specific and actually... It was a very prophecy regarding what God would do. So that son became a living prophecy in the days of Isaiah. And again, he prophesied around 700 B.C. So keep that in mind as we read this prophecy in Isaiah 9-6 about the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking, wow, this is amazing. It is so specific and detailed. 700 years before Christ was born, and when Christ was born, he fulfilled these to the T, and some of these are yet to be fulfilled to the T as well in the future. How exciting is that? It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and look at it on Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, I put there that Jesus is the only thing that makes Christmas merry. Apart from Christ, Christmas has no meaning. Christmas is all about him. And Isaiah 9, 6 makes this prophecy about the coming Messiah. Isaiah writes, For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Absolutely amazing. This is Jesus that Isaiah is talking about. Let's go ahead and look at some of these details about this blessed Lord Jesus. Looking at verse 6. First of all, what's amazing. By the way, we're just doing a survey of this verse because it is so rich and there is so much there that could be expanded upon. But first of all, Isaiah makes this 
prophecy of this Messiah who's going to fulfill the things that he predicted would happen in the first five verses. He sets the context that a light is going to come to the world. A light is going to invade darkness. A light is going to invade fallenness, sinfulness, wickedness in this world because God is a savior. He's a saving God. He loves his people. God so loved the world, says John 3.16. God so loves his creation that he sent his son, that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's in keeping with this statement. God is going to fulfill that promise for a son. A child will be born to us. A son will be given. So that is the promise that Jesus is the light of the world. He's going to invade this fallen world, the world that he created that fell into sin to rescue it and those that would hear and heed his voice. And it will be fulfilled when the Messiah is born the first time. The beginning two phrases, therefore, a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. Those are two parallel statements, but they're not synonymous. They accentuate two very important different truths. The first one is that this Messiah, who will this Messiah be? He will be a child. He will be human in nature like any other child. It's the normal word for child, the beginning of verse 6. So the Messiah would be a human. And just like every other human, he would be born through a woman, through the natural human process and that's exactly what happened with jesus jesus although he existed for all eternity came down into this world and he chose to go through according to the father's plan being born through a woman and so he took up residence in mary's womb for nine months and went through the normal process of a pregnancy that mary did like any other woman absolutely amazing and then when jesus was born he was born as a little baby boy just like any other baby boy he was circumcised and went through all the same uh, requirements, the Old Testament law, and, and grew up in great obscurity and grew up just like any other little boy would and learned how to talk and walk and or crawl and walk and normal things. Yet doing all of this without ever sinning because he was more than just a boy and more than just a human. But he was 100% human, yet without sin. Very important. And that's what the first part of this verse is highlighting and recognizing, that a child is going to be born to us and that's how god is going to rescue his people through a child through a human why did the messiah have to be human because he had to be able he had to be the perfect substitute for us we are human and to have a perfect substitute the savior had to be a hundred percent human and that's the wisdom of god so the savior would be a hundred percent human with a hundred percent human nature yet without sin the perfect human a child born like all of us and as a result of being 100 percent human he could sympathize with us as the great mediator and sympathetic high priest jesus has been there whatever you're suffering with whatever you're confronted with jesus was confronted or tempted with it as well yet without sin and he is our sympathetic high priest so this is very important the fact that the messiah would be a hundred percent human on our behalf as the perfect substitute and then the second part of the verse there is a son will be given to us. So not only is the Messiah going to be a child, 100% human, he's going to be more than human. He will be a son. And primarily from the Old Testament and also highlighted in the New Testament, the word son is accentuating two great truths. It's not just any child. It's a specific child. It is a son. It is the son who would be heir. It is the son of promise. It is the son of prophecy it is the son ultimately of almighty god it is the son of yahweh it is the son of the father that's what this is accentuating and highlighting not just any child and the new testament goes on to show that 
the word son of God. A lot of people don't even understand what that means. Yeah, Jesus is the son of God, whatever that means. Like you and I are the son of God. That's not what it means. The phrase son of God, especially in the gospel of John, when used in reference to Jesus, means that Jesus is of the same nature, essence, being as his father, almighty, eternal God. In effect, every time Jesus referred to himself as son of God, he was calling himself deity or God. And that's why the Pharisees and Sadducees got so upset with him when he did that, picking up stones to stone him. Why do you want to stone me? Which of the works that I have done that you would stone me for? It's not for the works that you have done. It's because you make yourself equal with Yahweh, with God. Why? Because he called himself son of the father. So that term there, son, refers to Jesus's deity, his equality with almighty God. We're going to see that more in a second. But also this prophetic promise that he would be a son of the promise. He's a son of King David in Second Samuel, where God promised that the ultimate king would reign on the throne of David, be a descendant of David, the rightful heir. The Messiah would come through the loins of David and be a son of David from the bloodline of David, the greatest son of all of David. So when you see this phrase, a son will be born, that's what it's accentuating and highlighting and connecting those two themes. Uh, the rightful heir, the son of David, who would take the legacy of the right to rule as the king of Israel and ultimately the king of the world. And this king is more than a king. This king is deity himself, equal with almighty Yahweh God. That is all wrapped up in that term son. Absolutely amazing. Highlighting his supernatural nature. That is why, precisely in Isaiah 9, 6, that it doesn't say a son will be born to us. Because it's not highlighting his humanity. A child will be born to us. The Messiah will be 100% man. It says a son will be given, given supernaturally through the virgin birth. Eternal God in nature from the Father. He will be given, given, initiated by God, given as a gift from God. This verse, by the way, is picked up in John 3.16 where it said, God so loved the world that he gave. God initiated grace. God initiated salvation. That's why he gave. It's a gift. It can't be earned. It's not deserved. God so loved the world. God so loved sinners that he gave. Gave what? Gave his only begotten son. Literally, that God the Father gave his unique son. His unique son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in fulfillment to this prophecy right here, Isaiah 9, 6. And God would give him to the world and he would be born in a unique way, never to be repeated or replicated, and that was through a virgin birth. Jesus had no human father. It's called the virgin birth. He bypassed the curse and the sin of Adam, among other things, and was supernaturally occupied Mary's womb through a miracle of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so a son would be given. So in the beginning of verse 6, God is highlighting two things. This Messiah would be 100% human and 100% God in a... And as a result, the Savior is the God-man. Almighty God of the universe tabernacled among us. That's who the Savior would be. And so, as human, He is the perfect substitute for us, for we are human. While being God at the same time, 100%, He has the power and the ability and the sinlessness and the holiness required to satisfy a holy God as our substitute. Hence, He had to be the Son of God. He had to be God and man as the perfect substitute. Again, revealing the wisdom of God. So that's just an introduction to who this Messiah would be. And then Isaiah gets very specific regarding his role and also his identity. Who is this Jesus? So let's look at it. These five things about who this Jesus 
not was. I remember Time Magazine around Easter had that uh, title and it said, Who was Jesus? I'm thinking, oh, that's, that's incorrect. That's bad grammar. It's who is Jesus? He is the living one. He reigns on high. He rose from the dead. He's coming again. So let's go ahead and look and see who Jesus is. Our blessed Savior. It goes on in verse 6 and it says, The government will rest upon his shoulders. The government will rest upon his shoulders. This is uh, yet to be fulfilled. By the way, every one of these that we're going to look at, uh, the government and all of his names, they are all fulfilled in a complex way and in multiple different ways. Because every one of these truths about Jesus was fulfilled the first time he came. It was fulfilled spiritually, primarily when he came. It was fulfilled personally, on a personal one-on-one basis the first time he came. But every promise given here that he's going to rule uh, as a government leader and all of his attributes here, many things are yet to be fulfilled too. There's future fulfillment yet to happen. There's universal fulfillment that's going to happen. There's physical, earthly fulfillment that's going to happen. And ultimately, there's going to be eternal fulfillment of all of these truths about the Lord Jesus that we will experience forever so it was inaugurated and began 2000 years ago but hasn't been fulfilled totally in their entirety and we're going to see that but the first thing it says about this child this supernatural god man that we've born as a gift to the world is that the government will rest upon his shoulders he's going to be a universal ruler in one respect jesus is the ruler of the universe he created this world along with the father and the spirit and according to colossians and hebrews jesus continues to sustain this universe that he created He upholds the universe and every molecule by the word of his power. So in that sense, he is already a ruler. But more specifically, at some point in the future, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule literally on the earth, spearheading his sole government over this world. And just for a a quick peek, go to Revelation if you have your Bible handy. And really, this is where this is ultimately fulfilled. Is Jesus currently ruling the universe yes is he physically doing it on the earth no he's reigning in absentia he's reigning from heaven someday he's literally going to be physically reigning on the earth literally and that's where this prophecy will ultimately be fulfilled the government of israel will literally be on his shoulders and the government of the entire earth will be on his shoulders and he will be the king the sole king with no competitors Here's when it's going to be ultimately fulfilled. Uh, Revelation 19. You know, some people say, well, Christians aren't supposed to get involved in politics. I'm just telling you, Jesus is going to get involved in politics in Revelation 19. Because he's going to be the sole political ruler. He's going to wipe out his political enemies. Not because they're political enemies, but because of their sin and rebellion. They refuse to bow the knee to him. And so John gets a vision of what's going to happen in the future. This hasn't already happened. This didn't happen in the past. This hasn't happened in history. Revelation 19, 11 and following is yet future. It's going to happen. This is how the world will end. And I saw heaven open, says John the Apostle, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. So this is the Lord Jesus Christ glorified in his body, reigning on high, and he's coming down to the earth. As he promised. And this is yet future. He's coming out of heaven. And get this. Remember the first time Jesus came. He came as the suffering servant. The lowly. Humble. Suffering servant. And that was his intention. The second time he comes back. 
totally different, not as the suffering servant, but as the conquering king and as a warrior, as the mighty one, as mighty God. It says that when he comes back again in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Is Jesus a pacifist? Not here. Waging war. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So he's still got this infinite nature about himself as God, even though he's very personal to his own. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's not the blood from the cross. That's the blood from his enemies that he slays. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, that could be the angels and the saints, white and clean, were following him on his white horse. I personally believe this will be me and a company of other believers on their white horses. This is very exciting. I don't know how to ride a horse, but a flying horse, I'll try it. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following Jesus on their white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike the nations, and he will rule them. There it is. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the one. So he's going to rule as king of kings and lord of lords. And then flip over to Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. When will Jesus rule? How will he rule? He rules on the earth. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years will be completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus... And because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image during the time of the tribulation and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life, they rose again from the dead and they reigned with Christ 1,000 years. When is Jesus going to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords literally on the earth? It is in the future when he comes and lands on earth, takes over and rules literally for 1,000 years. Do I believe Jesus will literally reign for 1,000 years on the earth? Yes, because it's in the Bible and it says so six times in Revelation 20 that he will reign for 1,000 years. The government will rest on his shoulders. In the meantime, he is the government and world ruler in abstentia. He is still the Lord on the throne. He is, there's still nothing that happens apart from his permission and his plan. He is still, even though he's not here personally, sovereignly in control of all things. God, that's why we can say God works all things together for good. For those who know God, for those who love God. So that's who he is. So now let's go ahead and look at these five attributes about the Lord Jesus, this promised Messiah who would be born of Mary. First of all, uh, it says that his name will be called. And then it goes on to give these five attributes about the name of Jesus. And in the New Testament and also in the Old Testament, when you refer to somebody's name, you refer to their character. You refer to their nature. His name is... You're talking about his very nature and what he is like. So the name refers to what Jesus will be like and what in his very nature. The first thing that Jesus is called is that Jesus is called wonderful, which takes us to point number one on your outline there, that Jesus is, and what does wonderful mean? In Hebrew, it means he is incomprehensible. He's incomprehensible, infinite in glory. This was uh, just a little highlight I was able to share. And I do want to go there quickly because many of you weren't there. In Judges chapter 13, just briefly summarize for you. The word here in Isaiah 9, 6, where it calls Jesus wonderful, we don't even know what that means. It's a Hebrew word. It is a very specific word. It is rarely used, and that's intentional, 
because it's a technical word and reserved for specific occasions and reasons. Wonderful. Hardly ever used in the Old Testament. But here Jesus is called wonderful. Now in English it's all watered down and we say oh, the 49ers are wonderful or well not this year anyway. But uh, this is wonderful. Your tie is wonderful. That's wonderful. This TV program is wonderful. That is not what it means. Get that definition out of your mind. That is not the Hebrew word used here. We're going to use the literal word. Literally, it means incomprehensible, primarily because it is supernatural. It is beyond comprehension. It defies human understanding, comprehension, explanation, rationale. There are some, some things that God does or that are a part of him that are so amazing, so infinite, so incomprehensible that it boggles the mind and the imagination. We can't even explain it. It leaves us in utter awe of who God is. That is this word. Absolutely amazing, unbelievable, however you want to say it. Defying of an utterly miraculous and supernatural nature. That's why this very word, wonderful, is translated into the Greek in the Greek Septuagint in the Old Testament. And that same word is used in the ministry of Jesus Christ regarding his miracles. The wonderful one, when he did a miracle, they were called his wonders. It's the same word. And at the end of Matthew 7 and other places, when Jesus did these wonders as the wonderful one and his miraculous deeds that couldn't be explained and defied imagination, doing things no one had ever done before, the crowds were around watching in awe, it says, at his wonders beyond explanation. Who is this man? So the wonders, the miraculous ones, are related to his very name. The wonderful one, the incomprehensible one. Going back to Judges 13, just a story about one of the judges 600 years before Isaiah was born named Samson. But Samson's parents, his dad was named Manoah and his mom was named Mrs. Manoah, apparently. And Samson's mom was barren. She couldn't have any children. But as Jewish parents, they wanted to be blessed with a child. They prayed to God and pleaded with God. And God answered their prayer and gave them the son Samson. But during the course of their struggle with God and crying out to him and praying for a child... God answers their prayer in a unique way, and God sends the angel of the Lord. So if you look at Judges 13, you can go through on your own, but 12 times the text refers to the angel of the Lord. That is distinct, using that definite article, the angel of the Lord. That rarely happens in the Old Testament. I can't even, I don't think that happens in the New Testament. I don't think the New Testament, unless I'm wrong, never refers to the angel of the Lord. It refers to angels or an angel. Because the angel of the Lord is a specific person. The angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. Here, pre-incarnate. He hasn't even been born of Mary, yet he exists. And he is glorious. And he's called the angel of Yahweh, or the representative of Yahweh, or the one that came directly from the presence of Yahweh, God the Father. That's what that means, the angel of Yahweh. He's of a supernatural nature. But he looks like a normal man or... Like a glorious angel, according to the testimony in Judges 13, because Manoah is interacting with him. Manoah's wife is interacting with the angel of the Lord as he comes to answer their prayer. And Samson's mother's overwhelmed by this angel. And she, she goes and talks to Manoah, her husband, and says, oh, uh, Someone came from God. An angel came to me, and he was glorious. And she says his appearance in verse 6 was awesome. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine what that looked like. He didn't just look, he looked like a man in terms of a personage, but he was more than a man. It was obviously an angel and not just any angel. He was awesome in appearance. 
That's wonderful. That is Jesus. That is the angel of the Lord. So they're interacting with the angel of the Lord, with the pre-incarnate Christ, with God in a body, in an angelic body, Yahweh himself, and they don't even know that. First, they think they're just talking to a man. Then they kind of clue in, oh, I, wow, I think we're talking to an angel of God. And then finally, at the end of the story, they have an interchange with him, and they invite him to dinner, and he says, no, I won't have dinner, but make a sacrifice. Offer a sacrifice to Yahweh. You know what he was saying? Offer a, I won't eat your food, but offer a sacrifice of worship to me. The angel of Yahweh, almighty God himself, in your presence. And Manoah does it. He doesn't even know what he's doing. Until the very end of the story. When Manoah finally asks his name. By the way, Mr. Angel, what, what is your name? Maybe he's heard of Gabriel or Michael. And then in verse 18, <clears throat> the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Why do you ask my name? Why, why are you trying to label me and put me in a box? I don't know why he responded that way. Why do you ask me my name? Seeing it is wonderful. My name is incomprehensible. I am the incomprehensible, supernatural, miraculous one. Now, Manoah, it could very well be that Manoah knew this name of God, this unique name of God. We don't know. This, but the Hebrew word is just supernatural. It is beyond your comprehension, Manoah. And the story goes on. He reveals who his identity is, that he is the supernatural, wonderful one. And then so Manoah took the young goat. He makes an offering. And then it says that the angel performed wonders. See that word? It's the same word as the wonderful one. The wonderful one is doing wonders. Miracles before the eyes of Manoah. And that's when Manoah and his wife finally clued in, wow, this is more than an angel. I think we have the presence of Almighty God before us. Can you believe this? So they did these amazing miracles before their very eyes. And for it came about when the flame of the sacrifice of the fire went up uh, from the altar toward heaven. The angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord ascended into the flame of the altar. Poof, was gone. Then when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground in utter awe, in worship, realizing we were in the very presence of God. No man can see God and live. Verse 21, now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. The Manoah knew, he knew, finally for the first time, that it was not an angel of the Lord, it was the angel of Yahweh. And Manoah knew what that meant. This was, this was Yahweh in our presence. Verse 22, so Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. We have seen God in a body, in the form of an angel, and his name was Wonderful. His name is God's name is wonderful. God's name is wonderful. For 600 years, the story was probably passed on. God's name is wonderful. That is identity. God's name is wonderful. And then Isaiah in 700 BC prophesies regarding the Messiah to come. His name is wonderful. He is the angel of the Lord. He's of the same essence as almighty God and Yahweh of the Old Testament. That is who the Messiah will be. That is who Jesus is. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Amazing. Jesus is wonderful, infinite in glory. Let's go on to number two. In these very specific words that Isaiah is using to identify this blessed Savior to come and be born of Mary, he is wonderful, he's incomprehensible, he defies imagination, he's also counselor. 
Some would say he's, those go together, he's the wonderful counselor. Some people say these can be seen as couplets. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace. And others say, not necessarily grammatically, they can be taken separately. That wonderful is a separate description of Christ and counselor. But he is indeed not just a counselor, he is the wonderful counselor. He's the supernatural, miraculous counselor, and that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, and that's point number two. Now, when you want to see a counselor, there are some preconditions of what you want in a counselor, right? You want somebody that you can trust. You want somebody that you can divulge personal, private information to. Probably above most other things, you want somebody who's wise and has the answers, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't go to them as a counselor. You want someone who is wise. That makes for a good counselor. And then finally, you want somebody who's going to give you good counsel, but also provide you comfort. They're going to be personal with you. They are going to be a good listener. They're going to attend to your needs. They're going to say what is best for you. And through all this, they're going to give you hope and encouragement, and they are going to provide comfort. So when I think of a counselor, if I could distill it all down, I want a counselor who gives wisdom and comfort. Wisdom and comfort. Wisdom and comfort. The Bible says that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. There is none like him. He is supernatural. He is the best. He is the wonderful counselor. He gives wisdom. He gives comfort. The best thing about Jesus as the wonderful counselor, the supernatural counselor, is his office hours. His office hours and having to make an appointment and the fees that some of these counselors charge. Can I get an amen? But anyway, um, if you know Jesus Christ personally, he is accessible to you at any time. Any time of the day, he is always accessible. He's just a prayer away, isn't he? I mean, it's amazing. You can pray to Jesus any time, all the time, no matter where you are, no matter what is going on. And if you know Jesus Christ personally, he will listen attentively. He will listen intimately. He will listen better than anybody else. He uh, is the wonderful counselor. He will attend to your needs in a supernatural and miraculous way. He knows you. He knows me better than we know ourselves. He knows what we need better than we know uh, ourselves. He always listens. He always responds. He always gives the right answer. He comforts us. He is the great comforter. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the comforter, but Jesus is also called the comforter. He is the comfort. He's the one who provides comfort. He is sympathetic to our needs. He's the greatest counselor of all. And I think of scriptures all over the place, how Jesus is the wonderful counselor, provides that wisdom that we need. Is any of you lacking wisdom? Do what? Pray to God. Pray to Jesus. Pray to the wonderful counselor. God, I need wisdom in this situation. We can go to Jesus at any time, the wonderful counselor. Praying in faith, he'll answer our prayer. Praying in faith, he'll always give the right answer. His timing isn't always our timing, but he will always answer when we pray in faith. God, give me wisdom in this area. The Lord Jesus Christ is faithful to his promises. I think about the greatest extended sermon that Jesus ever preached was the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Scripture. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 in Matthew. At the end of the sermon, when Jesus talked about pretty much everything in life, how to do religion, how to pray, how not to pray, how not to be a hypocrite, how to think, who to associate with, how to give, how to live, how not to worry about the things of the world, how to trust God. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry about what you will wear or where you will live. God the Father will provide all of these things for you. 
He provided an entire biblical philosophy of life in the Sermon on the Mount, that sermon, and how to have live a life of joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. And when he was done, he said, the one who heeds and listens to me is like a wise man. If we would only listen to Jesus, we would be wise. Why? Because he is the wise, wonderful counselor. We need to go to his words for ultimate wisdom regarding all of life's problems. And his words are in scripture provided for us. Jesus is the wise and wonderful counselor. And that second component, how you want a counselor who is going to comfort you, who really cares, who really listens, also in, I think, of the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 11, where Jesus says, come to me. He just gives this open universal call. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Anybody here weary and heavy laden from life? Trials of life, just living life. Life is hard. Life is tiring. Life is wearisome. Anyone who is weary and heavy laden, come to me. Come to me. See, that's the answer. Come to Jesus. And his promise is, I will give you rest. I will give you peace in your soul. I will comfort you. I will answer your prayer. I will give you what you need. I will give you true peace, comfort, joy, satisfaction to help you persevere through the weariness of life. The wonderful counselor. When was the last time you had a list of all of your problems, concerns, and worries, and instead of going here, there, and a counseling book here, and a this and that there, that you went to Jesus one-on-one in prayer and talked to him. Lord Jesus, you are the wonderful counselor. I know you. You've adopted me. You've saved me. Your ear is always attentive to me. I love you, and you love me even more. And I want to go to you and come to you as the sympathetic, wonderful counselor. Here are all of my burdens. I lay them before you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. What a wonderful promise from the Lord Jesus. He is the ultimate wonderful counselor. Let's go on to point number three. After Jesus is incomprehensible and infinite glory, Jesus is all wise, intimately caring for us. Jesus is called mighty God. Mighty God. It's amazing. The term mighty is kind of a military term. And the picture, it is picturesque and it speaks of a warrior. Kind of a military warrior. We saw some of that in Revelation 19. But also, so there's two truths here. Jesus is the warrior, the omnipotent one, uh, the all-powerful and strong one. He needs to be mighty and all-powerful and omnipotent because he needs to ward off the enemy. But he also needs to protect his people from the enemy. You want somebody strong and mighty to protect you and give you security, right? And that's what Jesus promises to do. And he doesn't give this super or this protection on a human level. It is supernatural protection because he's not just a mighty man. He was mighty God. So the emphasis there, God, he is deity. He is deity in his nature, in his essence. He always has been God. He's been God for all eternity. He continues to be God. He doesn't change in his nature. And he is mighty God. He's the warrior God. He's the defender God. He's the one. The reason he needs to be a mighty God is that he needs to fulfill the promises just made in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, where that's going to take some might of a warrior to implement here on planet Earth. Jesus will fulfill that task as the mighty God, but also that emphasis there on the fact that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That is the distinctive of biblical Christianity. That is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel means good news. We tell good news to sinners so that they might be saved, but they can't save themselves. 
No human can save them. They need supernatural help to save them. Only God can save them. And that's why God, if Jesus is going to be a savior, he has to be more than a man. He has to be God. And he has to be a mighty God because only mighty God can save sinners from their sin. It takes a supernatural work of almighty God. And Jesus can fulfill that task by virtue of the fact that he is mighty God. And we need to clarify, Jesus is not the father. Jesus is different from the father. He's distinct from the father. They are two different persons. Well, it calls him father in the next one, eternal father. Yeah, we'll explain that. Jesus is God, but he is not the father. So look at, I'm just going to go to John 1, 1, if you have your Bible, otherwise you can just listen to just accentuate this truth that Jesus is God. He's almighty, eternal God. He is the creator God. He is God who is judge. He is God who is savior. He's God, the all sufficient and sovereign one, but he is not the father. He's different from the father. He is distinct from the father. The father and Jesus have existed for all eternity together in perfect harmony as two different persons who love each other and have had eternal intimate fellowship with one another for all eternity and will continue to do so as two different persons along with the Holy Spirit. And this is most vivid in John 1, 1, where it says, in the beginning before creation is what it's referring to. In the beginning before creation was the Word. In the beginning before creation, Jesus is the Word, by the way, in verse 14 it says. Who is the Word? Jesus. So you could literally read, in the beginning before creation, Jesus already existed. Before He was born of Mary. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus already existed. And the Word, or Jesus, was with God in the beginning before creation. That's what that means. In the beginning, before creation, Jesus already existed as God, and he was with God the Father. And it even gets more explicit because of the Greek uh, prepositions that are used. In the beginning, before creation, Jesus already existed, and he was facing God the Father. He was face-to-face with the Father. He was toward the Father in close, personal intimacy at an equal level and equal nature. That's really what it is emphasizing before all creation. This is emphasizing the deity of Jesus Christ and his equality with God the Father before creation. And also emphasizing that they are distinct. They are not the same. In the beginning, Jesus already existed before creation. He was with God the Father as they were already having intimate fellowship for eons and eons. And they had equal fellowship with one another before Jesus was incarnated. They were face to face because that's the closest kind of intimacy that two or beings, persons can have. And Jesus was face to face with God the Father. And Jesus himself was deity. He was equal with God the Father. In power, in glory, in deity, in essence, in nature, with a different role. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. He is the mighty God. And as God, Jesus deserves adoration as as god jesus deserves our worship my second favorite or it's just his favorite my favorite christmas verse is matthew two eleven, where it says that the magi the kingmakers came from the east they're following jesus's light the light goes over the house where jesus was as a newborn baby and it says the kingmakers the magi they go into the house and when they saw baby jesus who knows how just a, a child baby the kingmakers who will bow the knee only to a king brought him gifts and bowed before him and worshipped him. The Magi did. According to the Bible, we worship God and God alone. It's a great testimony that Jesus is God and worthy of our worship. One of the priorities we need to have during Christmas is worshipping Jesus as the mighty God. 
So Jesus is incomprehensible. Jesus is all wise. Jesus is deity. Number four, Jesus is the author of life. This is this verse trips people up because it says the mighty God, he's the eternal father. Well, also Jesus is the father. No, Jesus is not the father of uh, the Hebrew construction. Very specific, very explicit. And all it means is Jesus is the <clears throat> source or the author of eternity. That's what it means. It doesn't mean he is personal heavenly father. He is the source, the origin or the author of of the ages. He is the author of eternity, which is amazing because all it means is that anything of an eternal nature, the source is in Jesus Christ. You want eternal life? Then you can only get it from one source. It's knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the life. Jesus said that in John 11, just before he rose Lazarus from the dead. I am the life and the resurrection. Jesus gives physical life, but Jesus is also the one who gives eternal spiritual life. And that's really what this is emphasizing. He is the author of the ages. He is the author of eternity. He never changes. He's always existed. Hebrew says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the eternal one. So it's emphasizing Jesus' eternality. He is not a created being. Jesus never had a beginning. He didn't just come into existence at some point in the past. He has always existed. He is the eternal one. The eternal unchanging one. And he's existed for all eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's also emphasizing that he's the sovereign one over life, eternity. And at his discretion, he gives eternal life to his creation on the condition that they believe in his glorious gospel. One verse I want to look at to highlight this truth, John 17, verse 5. If you've got your Bible, you can flip there. It's absolutely amazing. This is just days before his crucifixion. He was with his 12 apostles having the Last Supper, the Passover, just got his feet washed. This, this time has dismissed Judas as the betrayer. Sitting around uh, intimate words, they also start walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he, he prays to the Father just before his death. Verse 1 of John 17. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. There are some amazing verses here. Verse 3, this is eternal life. Jesus said this in his prayer. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, here's the one I wanted to highlight in verse 5. Now, Father, here it is, glorify me. What does that mean? Give me back my glory. Jesus didn't give up his deity when he came down from heaven and became a man. One thing Jesus did give up or relinquish was his glory. The outward manifestation and exercise of all of his attributes of almighty eternal God and submitted all of that to the Father. And so now he's praying, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, equal glory, with the glory, not that he wants for the first time, but with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. Absolutely amazing. Jesus is saying right here about himself that he is eternal God, the all-glorious God who existed for all time and eternity past on an equal level with the Father. And Father, welcome me home where I get to take that glory on once again. The all-glorious eternal God, absolutely amazing. The sovereign one of the ages. 
the author of life. That's why Jesus said, listen to me, this, the one who has the Son has life. If you believe in me, you have eternal life. The one who does not have the Son does not have life. So he is the author of the ages, the everlasting Father, the eternal one, and the giver of life. And finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace, there's a political component or emphasis here in Isaiah 9-6 that it someday, and we already talked about that, how he's literally going to be bring peace to the earth. I was uh, in a store at a mechanic's place and how, catching up, how's it going? And, and so I asked him, so uh, what, what and I, he's not a Christian, what do you want for Christmas? And he said, oh, that's the, I want world peace. I said, wow, number one, that's too expensive. Two, I can't wrap that. Um, but that's what he said. And he was serious. He wants world peace. Oh, just everybody get along. And they, I want world peace. Well, that's coming. World peace on the earth is coming, but it's coming on Jesus' terms. He will be the prince of peace. He will enact peace. He will, and that will start in Revelation 19.11. In the meantime, Jesus came to bring peace. He came to bring first spiritual personal peace on a one-on-one level. And he did that at the first coming of Christ where he came to his own. He preached the gospel and he promised to bring peace. And it was peace first and foremost of enmity that was between you and God or me and God. Because when we were born into this world as sinners, we were born separated from God. We were born enemies of God. That's what scripture says. Ephesians 2 says that when we were born and we were not saved, we were children of wrath from God's point of view. And then Romans 5 says, before we got saved, we were enemies of God. We hated God before we got saved. What do enemies need? They need reconciliation. They need to be made friends. There needs to be peace needs to happen. That's what reconciliation means, to bring peace, a true peace, between friends. And the only source of reconciliation in this world that is true and lasting is the peace that the Lord Jesus Christ brings through his gospel. And that's why the gospel is called the gospel of peace, because it is brought by the prince of peace. And when you repent of your sin and ask God for forgiveness and ask him to save you, you become the friend of God. You have been reconciled with God. You're no longer his enemy. And then we have been given this message of peace. And we preach the gospel of peace. And we preach reconciliation to others who might have peace with this eternal God. And then they will come to know Jesus personally as the one and only Prince of Peace. So that's primarily what this means. This has to do with his role as Savior, making peace between sinners and a holy God. It starts there. Then after you become a Christian, there are other applications of that because when you get saved as a Christian, God gives you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And in obedience to the Spirit, you experience the fruits of the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. And it's primarily peace with other people. Wrought by God through the work of the Holy Spirit in exercise of your will. Insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. That is only possible if you know Jesus Christ personally, the Prince of Peace. And it comes only through a salvation experience of believing His glorious gospel so there is our blessed lord jesus there's the true meaning of christmas and that's why we can be merry and have true joy because jesus is incomprehensible jesus is the all-wise caring counselor jesus is deity and equal to the father jesus is the author of life and the one that imparts eternal salvation and jesus is the one who gives us peace with a holy god as we're adopted into his family as the children of God. What a glorious Christmas message. With that, let's go to the Father and thank Him for this blessed truth. Father, we do thank You for this morning. And again, just the unique reminder or opportunity we have to be reminded of such a simple truth, and that is 
why the Lord Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago. Thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. You've made it clear through Scripture. God, help us through your Holy Spirit and deliberate meditation and prayer to think about how glorious this blessed Savior is to those of us who know him personally today and, and the rest of this week. God, give us sequestered, unique times of prayer to glory in that. Lord Jesus, I pray that anybody that has a troubled, heavy soul can go to you as the wonderful counselor and see your promise fulfilled where you said you would give us rest, you would give us wisdom that we need. What a blessed truth. God, I pray for those who don't know you. Family members we have, friends we have, co-workers we have, that you can use us in some way to bring this glorious uh, truth in a, a personal way to them that they might be set free and know you just as we do. We thank you. We give you the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.